This is a reading from the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in the front, in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves. And he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say than the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Stand up and take your mat and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Last week, 
We noted that we know Jesus as the one accomplishing something again on a cosmic scale. This week we come to know Jesus as dinner guests at his table. Someone who is with sinners, not just dealing with sin uh, in this sort of macro theological sense. We know him not just as the source of a problem that needs to be solved, but as a presence, the very person of the living God near us. As a way into our passage of scripture tonight, um, I want to recall um, to those of you that were here this last summer, um, I want to recall to your memory some of the things we talked about from our, our study of Leisure Bonhoeffer's Life Together. For those of you that weren't, I want to share with you um, some of what you missed out uh, on. So this last summer, we spent five weeks reading through a small book by a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. Um, and small though it is, it's one of those books that wastes no words. Um, and among the myriad of insights in that book, probably my favorite one um, is that when Christians see one another, Bonhoeffer says that when, when a Christian sees another Christian coming up to them, um, that, that what, what you should think as a Christian about this other Christian that's approaching you is, here comes a sinner. Here comes a sinner. That this is the way that we ought to see one another approaching. Under that, under that description, here comes a sinner. The exact quote is this. Here comes a sinner like myself, a godless person who wants to confess and longs for God's forgiveness. Bonhoeffer is suggesting with this word sinner, with this description and this disposition that he's encouraging us to have toward one another. He's trying to point out that under that, the name sinner, that we are given an ability to see one another that represents the sharpest possible contrast between the way that we can know ourselves and one another through faith in Christ and the kind of knowledge that is available for people outside of faith in Christ. So the word sinner in this quote from Bonhoeffer, in that phrase, here comes a sinner, what it, what it really is, what he's trying to point to is that there's, there's a way that we can recognize ourselves and one another that is not available to us outside of faith in Jesus. It's not available to us merely, merely through worldly knowledge. Um, and what Bonhoeffer, he uses this term psychological, by which he sort of means, it's kind of a catch-all term in that particular part of the book, but he, he calls it psychological, uh, basically that's the title for like worldly knowledge, knowledge in the absence of faith, right? So Bonhoeffer is trying to point out that worldly or psychological knowledge can't see human beings truthfully. And the reason it can't see human beings truthfully is because it lacks or abstains from the biblical grammar of sin. It lacks the grammar of sin that we find in the Christian scriptures. And for that reason, Bonhoeffer says that psychological practice can never fully diagnose the ailments that disciplines like psychology aspire to diagnose and to address. And moreover, given as the scribes in our gospel reading tonight point out, 
that only God can forgive sin, not only can merely worldly or psychological knowledge not diagnose human ailments, but given that only God can forgive sin, even less can that knowledge bring healing for the true ailments of human beings. The main thing, though, that I want to call to your attention here, and the main usefulness that this has for us as we read this passage from Mark tonight, is noticing the way that Bonhoeffer is highlighting this contrast in perspectives. Right? A contrast in perspectives. The presence of words like sin and sinner in the grammar of, of Christians and the absence of those words, those same words, sin and sinner, in the grammar of the psychologist means this. Not just that the Christian and the psychologist say different things about any given person they might encounter. Rather, it entails that they see different things, that they see different people as they encounter those people. That though the Christian and Bonhoeffer psychologist may be looking upon the same human creature, they will literally see two different people. So taking a cue from Bonhoeffer, in that sense of contrast, I want us to read and interpret our passage of scripture tonight uh, from Mark's Gospel. But I want to focus on it chiefly as a contrast of perspectives that's on display in this story from the second chapter of Mark. It's a story that contrasts what Jesus sees with what everyone else in the story sees. And it's evident that Jesus sees what he does because of what he says. But what I hope to convey in the way that we pay attention to this passage of Scripture is that the difference, this difference in perspective is not merely one of vocabulary. It's not merely a fact that Jesus has these words and these other people don't. But rather, that the difference that is being named in Christ's words um, is a difference that's made by the very presence of Jesus. It's a difference made by the experience of his unrelenting forgiveness. So we'll use verse 5, and really just kind of the first three words of verse 5 as the vantage point from which we'll try to map these contrasting perspectives. Um, when Jesus saw, uh, we read in verse 5. When Jesus saw, and I want us to note two things that Jesus saw. Um, the first thing I want us to see that Jesus saw actually comes second in the verse. So we're going to skip toward the end of that verse at first. The first thing Jesus sees is a sinner. Right? The first thing Jesus sees is a sinner. We know that that's what Jesus sees in verse 5 and in this portion of the story. Because why? What is it in verse 5 that tells us that Jesus is seeing a sinner? Um, that was the easy question. Uh, we know because uh, he pronounces forgiveness on this man who he's watching come down from a hole in the ceiling. Um, now this is, has always, to me, has always been weird. 
Um, I've always thought this was an odd way for Jesus to interact with, with this moment. Especially given the way that Jesus seems to have interacted with, with other similar moments uh, that have come before and that come after this one in the Gospel. Um, so, here's what I mean. There are, there are people in the, the Gospel of Mark, and there are people in chapter 2 of the Gospel of Mark, like in immediate proximity of this moment, who are conspicuously sinners. All right? There are folks in our reading tonight who are sinners in a way that is publicly not contested. Like, no one puts up an argument at the latter part of this passage whenever the scribes are like, the scribes of the Pharisees are like, why is he just hanging out with the sinners? Um, there's a group of people that is just recognizable as the sinful ones. Um, so, by contrast, so in other words, like a lot of people seem to be recognizing those people as sinners in the latter part of this passage. By contrast to what happens later in the passage, though, it seems at this moment, as of verse 5, that no one but Jesus is identifying this man as a sinner. That whatever his friends, I would, I would venture to say, whatever it is his friends think about him, and whatever it is I imagine that everyone else thinks about him as they encounter him, I don't think that sinner is the primary descriptor that they would have of him. It seems that Jesus recognizes him in a way that contrasts palpably with the way that we initially are tempted to recognize him. When we see the man lowered into the room through the roof, we readers see him chiefly under the descriptor that Mark gives him, um, a paralytic. Right? That's how Mark describes him. We see him as a paralytic. And yet, Jesus straightaway interacts with him as a sinner. Um, it might be... Why do you think that is? Why, why, don't, why doesn't it occur to us that this man is a sinner? Do you have any thoughts about that? Let me put this another way. Like, would it surprise any of you if the way the story went instead was uh, this man was lowered from the ceiling and Jesus, seeing the faith of these people, just cut straight to the chase and said, pick up your bed and go. Would that have surprised anyone? What, what feels odd about that? It seems to me that perhaps um, that the reason that we don't see him initially or primarily as a sinner um, 
is almost that we absolve him of his sin by virtue of our pity for him. What we see is a serious deformation of human flesh. We see a human being suffering in ways that we hope never to find ourselves suffering. We see someone whose flesh is contorted and withering in ways that make them physically helpless. And we see him chiefly through the eyes of pity. And in so doing, if nothing else by our blindness to what Jesus sees, we're almost blinded by that pity, right? And I'm not, I, I don't want to say that Jesus doesn't pity the man. It would be odd to say that he doesn't, given that just a few verses before this, he's pitying a leper. But it doesn't seem like feeling bad for the man's physical ailments is the primary way that Jesus is interacting with this person. Instead, when suddenly a hole opens up in the ceiling above him, um, a bizarre sight on all accounts, and the atrophied flesh of a man on a cot comes swinging down precariously into the room, Mission Impossible style, Jesus looks up and thinks to himself, here comes a sinner. A godless person who wants to confess and longs for God's forgiveness. I mean, I think we can pretty well directly import, with some very slight modifications, Bonhoeffer's suggestion into this moment. Jesus thinks, oh, here's a sinner. A godless person. There's something almost embarrassing about this moment, to me. The moment when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Um, Like, I feel tempted to be like, or I almost expect Peter, you know, who's always like happy to butt in. Or someone else, you know what I mean? To be like, hey, that's really nice, but I think maybe you missed the point of what's happening here. I don't know if that's what they were after. It's just, you know, like, maybe you could do the thing for him that you did for the leper. There's almost something embarrassing. It's almost as if Jesus is is being, like, socially obtuse in this moment. There's something shocking to us about Christ suddenly and with a, with a, a bluntness just saying, Sinner, in effect. Here's a sinner. There's something that we're scandalized by in this moment where Christ brings this man's sin out into the open. Jesus, however, is not at all shocked by the man's sin. In fact, to Jesus, apparently, sin is the most ordinary and predictable and universal thing about all the people that he's liable to encounter in that room. What is remarkable to Jesus is not the sin of this person, but that some of the sinners gathered in that place have faith. When Jesus saw, this brings us to the second thing that I want to point out. When Jesus saw their faith, verse 5 reads, when Jesus saw their faith, that's when he pronounces forgiveness. I think that we can, we can intuit that Jesus does find these people's faith remarkable. For one reason, because it just is narratively remarkable that people would go to these extremes to do whatever they can to get this person to Jesus, into the presence of Jesus. But also in kind of like a canonical way, like in a scriptural sense, there's something about the the way this story is written that in this moment, 
of Jesus seeing these people's faith that at least for me resonates with with other stories in the Gospels. For example, the moment that when Jesus gets a messenger from the centurion, Jesus is on his way to heal the centurion's servant. And someone comes from the centurion with a message with the centurion saying, look, don't, don't come. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And the gospel writers say that Jesus marveled in that moment at the faith of the centurion and said, I haven't seen that kind of faith anywhere else. To me, there's something akin to that happening in this moment of Jesus seeing these people's faith. There's a brief but loaded pause where Jesus is watching something happen that has perhaps escaped everyone else's notice. And their faith is the thing that Jesus has his eye on. Their faith is the thing that the gospel writer Mark means to bring to our attention this evening. The faith of Sinners is a marvelous thing to Jesus. And the faith of sinners is the distinctive, the distinguishing thing in this passage of Scripture. It's the only real distinguishing feature between... It's the only thing that, can, that you can use to meaningfully categorize all the different characters in the verses we read tonight. The ones that have faith... And the ones who demonstrate that they do not have faith. So, which is to say that the distinction that the scribes and Pharisees are trying to make later in the passage. The scribes of the Pharisees, I should say. um, With the word sinners. When they say, why is Jesus eating with sinners? They're attempting to make that word, you do do like a distinguishing work. Where it's like, these people over here who are the sinning ones. Versus whatever else we, the users of the word sinners, are. Right? That's a false distinction. The only meaningful distinction in the passage among anyone is the people that, that have the faith that results in Jesus saying, or in the space of which Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven, and the people who refuse that faith. There's a connection between the scribes and the paralytic. Um, and this may or may not be that important, but it's something I, that I, I just would submit to your, your thought and attention. Um, and, and it's this, that in Jesus' presence, what's hidden is disclosed. It's brought into the light. So, the fact that this man is a sinner is something that, that, that's being lowered from the ceiling. That's brought into the light. It's brought into focus in the presence of Christ. Perhaps in the same way, we can say that Jesus, in these moments that he's articulating, was uttered only in the hearts and in the whispers of the scribes among each other, is being brought into the light in the presence of Jesus. He asks, in the gospel, he asks a couple times, why do you say this in your heart? Or Mark says, they were wondering in their hearts, how can this man say that he forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus asks later, why, why are you questioning this? In your heart. So something that's secret is being disclosed. And so we might say that Jesus knows the man coming down from the ceiling is a sinner. In the same way that he knows the hearts of everyone else who's in 
the room. He's not doing something different when he, when he discerns. He knows that he's a sinner, not just because he knows that he's the only sinless one around, right? But because he knows. I guess what I'm trying to highlight here is there may be some specificity to what Jesus is saying when he says your sins are forgiven. There may be that Jesus literally has his eye on this man's heart. And he's saying your sins are forgiven, not just in the general sense, but because he knows him. In the, in the recesses of his heart, in the same way that he knows the scribes whose hearts are questioning. Um, okay, so, we too, we know Jesus. Um, as people who are numbered among sinners. We know Jesus as people that are numbered among the sinners. So to go back to Bonhoeffer, um, to what I mentioned at the beginning, the Christian, Bonhoeffer says, can see sinners. The Christian can say, when he, when he sees another person coming toward him, here comes a sinner. And there's two reasons for that, two interdependent reasons for that. One reason is because, the first reason is because um, the Christian knows himself to be a sinner. So the wording of that quote, again, was, here comes a sinner like myself. Here comes a sinner like myself. So the Christian can recognize other sinners because he knows himself to be under that, is rightly named under that description. But even more deeply than that, the sinner, or the Christian can see the sinner, can see another person as a sinner because the Christian sees other people as people who live in the presence of the living God. The Christian sees other people as people in the presence of God. So, here's another part of that quote. Another believer views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Before the judging and merciful God in the Christ of Excuse me, in the cross of Jesus Christ. So, that first thing, that we know ourselves as a sinner, and because of that we're able to recognize others as sinners, that is dependent upon the fact that we found ourselves in the presence of a living God, in whose presence we encounter judgment and yet mercy. So the light, basically, then, what makes it possible for us to recognize other people as sinners, to say, here comes a sinner, is the presence of Jesus as, a, as the one offering the gift of God's forgiveness for sin. Saving faith, then, this faith that Jesus is looking at when he says, your sins are forgiven, it's not belief in a remote, conceptual God. Rather, the faith of sinners, um, the, the faith that saves is the faith of sinners. It's not faith that grows out of, um, 
a merely of a human conceptual effort and energy. But it's faith that grows out of an encounter where we hear Jesus say, your sins, your sins are forgiven. The faith of sinners, saving faith, is a simple faith that doesn't aim at, nor is it capable of doing anything more than just trying to get to where Jesus is. It does nothing, there's no comprehension, there's no like cognitive process that's on display in the moment that Jesus looks up at the person that's coming down from the ceiling. The only thing that's visible in that moment is that these people are doing everything they can to get to the presence of Jesus, to get near to Him. And when they get there, what they find is themselves receiving forgiveness. And that encounter with the living Jesus who says, Sons, Son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. That is the ground of Christian faith. It's an encounter. It's hearing something spoken to you by, by an agent, a person, who is nothing less than the living God. Saint Irenaeus said about this passage of scripture back in the day, um, if Christ forgives sins, he must be truly God. If Christ forgives sins, he must be truly God. That's such a simple statement that initially you can think that a guy with a name like Irenaeus, who we know was a preacher and spent all his time with the Bible, you know, he must be saying something about theology in that moment. Do you know what I'm saying? If Christ forgives sins, then he must be truly God. And then what you expect next is, you know, this sort of marshalling of all this biblical evidence. Which we can read that sentence differently. As if here I am and I'm encountering this person, and, and what I'm experiencing is that he's saying to me, Your sins are forgiven. And I'm experiencing that my sin is forgiven in that encounter. Then that one who is saying to me, your sins are forgiven, he must be God. If Christ forgives sins, he must be truly God. We encounter the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and is God. First of all, as the experience of being forgiven. We know Jesus is God because He's the one that forgives us. Not, we don't, rather than knowing that Jesus is God as an abstract theological proposition. If you struggle to believe in Jesus, then receive from Him the gift of the forgiveness of your sins. And in receiving that gift, you are already beginning to confess that Jesus is God. Saving faith is the faith of sinners. The faith of sinners, moreover, is a faith that we hold in common. It's a faith we hold in common. 
We step into this faith not as individuals exercising some kind of spiritual achievement. Rather, we come into the faith of sinners by by being numbered among the crowd that's cramming into the place where Jesus is. The faith of sinners is a faith we hold in common. It's a faith we receive by being gathered into the presence of Jesus among others. And together, because of the presence of Jesus, because of what he says, as we are crammed together into his presence, together we become conspicuous for what we are. Sinners given the gift of forgiveness. The faith of sinners is a faith held in common at an even deeper level. Consider this. The first sinner named in tonight's reading is a paralyzed man. Is it his faith that gains him access to forgiveness? The forgiveness of his sins? What evidence do we have of this paralyzed man's faith. He is a paralyzed man lying on a bed of some kind, which seems to suggest that he's paralyzed at least from the neck down. He's a silent paralyzed man. He never at any point in this passage says anything, which might suggest that he's in fact so His body is so broken that he doesn't even have the power of speech. We're not told how he came to be paralyzed. It may be that he's been this way his entire life. But one thing is for sure. We don't see him do anything. Anything. That would offer us evidence of just his faith in isolation. At any point in the passage. But we don't seem to do anything that even displays his faith until after he's been forgiven by Christ. So whose faith is it that falls under that word there? When Jesus sees their faith and then says to that that man, your sins are forgiven. It's not this man's will, certainly not his strength that brought him to Jesus. For all we know, He may not even have asked or wanted to come to Jesus. Um, He presumably has not much choice in the matter. His friends brought him. And it's while looking not just at the man, but at the whole group of folks that brought him that Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. It's only upon the ground of a collective faith. And the free gift of forgiveness, only upon that footing does the man find a place to stand up in order to obey Jesus' command. Stand up, take your mat, and go home. Where he's putting his feet when he stands up is the ground of a faith that's held in common and upon the ground of Christ's forgiveness. I point this out Because it may be that there are some of you here tonight who 
if you are honest about the state that your own faith is in, um, it's not that impressive. It doesn't seem that resolved. It doesn't seem like it qualifies you to be an exemplary member of what counts as being a believer. I know that any number of you are liable to be that person on any given Tuesday night because every year I talk to enough college students who tell me that that's where they are on some level. And so I bring that up because it may well be that the best that you can do tonight, maybe for a lot of nights, is to let yourself be carried here under the power of the faith of your friends. To find yourself forgiven. Even though, really, it's not quite you and what you know or what you believe that brings you into the presence of the one who speaks forgiveness over you. It may be that like the paralyzed man, that many of us will find ourselves in places where we can scarcely ask for what it is that we want. And yet, that by the faith that is given to the body of Christ, where we nonetheless, in those seasons, find ourselves receiving, despite our silence, the forgiveness of our sins. Whether you come to Jesus tonight as one lowered from the ceiling, or whether you come to Jesus in any other way that you might get to Him, this is the table that we read about at the end of our reading tonight, where Jesus is dining with his disciples, all of whom, verses 15 through 17 make clear, all of whom are sinners. Jesus says at the end of, of this reading tonight, I came not to call righteous people, but sinners. Um, which means those are the only ones that are following him. So when, when Mark says there were, there were many tax collectors and sinners following him, that doesn't mean there were many tax collectors and sinners following him and some other people that also were following him. It's like, no, if you're following Jesus, that's what you are. You're a sinner. And now that's visible and conspicuous. That's the table that we gather around tonight. Here we're revealed for what we are. The clot of sinners thronging around Jesus. Here we meet him as the one who says to all of us together, your sins are forgiven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.